Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is Professor Michael Littman. Uh, he's at Brown University, and uh, we're going to talk about his research in the areas of uh, AI and machine learning. So, Professor Littman, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I know you're busy. So, uh, yeah, tell me a little bit about uh, the research that you're working on. Sure. So, uh, I work in the area within computer science in the area of artificial intelligence. And within that, I work in machine learning. And within machine learning, my area of expertise is known as reinforcement learning, which is about getting machines to learn from positive and negative feedback. Okay. So um, for people that don't don't know, can you, you know, I've heard a lot of terms like deep learning, machine learning, reinforcement learning, neural networks. You know, I, I guess there's like at least seven different kinds of models for uh, for machines to learn things under the umbrella of AI. So can you talk about sp- some specifics of your area versus other areas? Yeah, of course. So let me uh, maybe I should define some of those terms that you just listed and relate them to each other because they're not all like variations. Some of them are categories and some of them are subcategories. So uh, within AI, the idea is the idea of machine learning is to create systems that can use data and experience to improve their their functioning in some some area. Uh, so so that's machine sure. learning as as a sort of a broad concept. Within machine learning, there's uh, there's a number of different scenarios in which the feedback might be presented to the learning system. And the, the most well-studied part of machine learning is sometimes called supervised learning. And it's about learning from feedback uh, that is the form of, no, 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 you should have done this. <laughs> so the, the machine right. learning system is given an example of an input. So when you see this kind of input, it tries to produce an output and we need to then uh, go from there to what, uh, within supervised learning, the idea is that the learning system is going to be able to map inputs that it's given to desirable outputs. And the feedback that it gets during learning is uh, examples of, okay, when you see this, here's what the output should be. When you see this, this is what the output should be. So, uh, you know, an example might be something like we, we give the system tens of thousands of images, photographs. And associated with each one is a label saying this is what's in the photograph. This is a this is a turkey. This is a uh, you know a, a water fountain. And so it's given those examples. It's given uh, here's 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 the example. Here's the image. You should associate with that image this label. Mm-hmm. Within supervised learning, neural networks are one kind of model that can be used to represent this mapping from input to output. It's basically you know, inspired by what we understand about neuro, uh, neurophysiology, but it's really very <laughs> approximately inspired. It really is just um, various kinds of mathematical operations that are mapping bit by bit all the different pieces of the image to ultimately a decision about what's in the image. And okay. within the context of neural networks, a deep network is basically a neural network that just has a lot of layers in it. It's it's instead of just uh taking an input layer and maybe transforming it once with a set of neurons and then transforming it to the output, there might be six or seven or more intermediate stages along the way. And and the reason oh, we call those refer- like hidden layers, right? Yeah, those they're hidden layers in the sense that they're not exposed to the 
outputs. They're not exposed to the target outputs that we're training the system to mimic, and they're not exposed to directly to the inputs, what it is that the network is taking as, as its example. They're kind of, you know, internal layers or hidden layers. And uh, right. back in the 90s, the last time that neural networks were super popular, we didn't have good techniques for training very deep networks. So it was not atypical for there to be one hidden layer, uh, sometimes zero hidden layers. Um, and so if you gave it maybe five or six hidden layers, it would just choke that we didn't have good training algorithms that could that could use that capacity. And so one of the recent what? breakthroughs is a set of algorithms that can actually do that. They can actually work with much deeper, more complex networks. What was the holdup? Why? What, what has changed? Like, what do the algorithms nowadays do that the old ones couldn't do? Yeah, it's a good question. So, so when I talk to people who work on this sort of stuff directly, they usually cite three particular things that are different in this wave from the previous wave. And some of them really have nothing to do with algorithms. They have to do with the fact that we just have way more data on any given problem. So, so back in the day, if we had a thousand labeled images, that was a lot. But now uh, what we realize is that a thousand labeled images isn't enough to train any kind of complex network. We really need hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of, of training examples. And the, you know, the world has shifted a lot since the 90s in terms of the availability of things online. Right. So it used yeah. to be that a group would have to scan the images themselves. And now <laughs> people all over the world are uploading images constantly. It's, it's, it's a very right. different yeah. kind of world. So that's, that's one know, way the world um, is different. Well, yeah, within sorry. that, how do you know, for instance, um, based on the number of factors, how, many, uh, how much training data you need? How do you, how do you know yeah. if you run a neural network, for instance, if you have, let's say, a million you know, pictures of cats, and your uh, algorithm still doesn't converge and still just still gets everything, you know, or doesn't get enough right. How do you know if it's not enough data versus uh, your algorithms wrong or something else is wrong? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Part of it is um, is a little bit of a black art. Um, there are formal mathematical proofs of sufficiency of various kinds of data. I don't think the practitioners typically use those results very directly. I think what's what's typical is if you've done this a bunch of times, what you start to realize is uh, certain certain flaws in the way that you're doing your training manifest themselves as particular flaws in the way that the results look, right? So, so a classic sort of thing that you can see is uh, a thing called overfitting. Um, overfitting is, is less common now, but it is this sort of well-known pattern of results that you can see where your error on the training examples as you're training your network is getting lower and lower and lower and lower. It's doing a much, much better job of handling the data that you gave it. But then when you show it something novel that it wasn't trained on, it's just it returns garbage. And that can happen because the system, as you give it, if you as you give it data and then train and train and train on that data, it can effectively memorize those examples and lose its ability to generalize to similar but but uh, you know but different examples than what was what it was given. Okay, gotcha. And and, uh, and yeah, one I, response I, to over yeah. One response okay, to yeah. uh, overfitting, if you're a practitioner and, and you see your, your system doing this, is to realize, okay, you either need more data to deal with the network that you have, or you need a simpler network. Those are, those are two ways that you can actually erase some of the problems of overfitting. Oh, you tried to fit your, uh, your algorithm too closely to the particular set of training data, so it's only good on that set and nothing else. Exactly. That's the essence of overfitting. Okay. So what, what other factors... Um, like you said, there's availability of a lot more data in most areas. You know, what other factors made, uh, you know, deep learning possible when it wasn't before when neural networks uh, popular now or useful? Yeah. So, okay. So one was, was there's just a lot more data 
And there's much better facilities for actually labeling that data. There's things like uh, Amazon Mechanical Turk and various other systems for getting labels into this huge set of data that you've collected. So that's that's one thing. Another thing is that computers are faster than they used to be, which is maybe not surprising to anyone. But um, but what that means is that we have the capability of of just pushing way more data through these systems in in reasonable amounts of time. And reasonable people's notion of reasonable has shifted too. We're now willing to wait a week to train uh, a complex network. Whereas before, you know, if it, if it didn't really do anything in a couple of hours, it seemed like it probably was never going to do anything. So I think people have started to realize that no, 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 no. Actually, if you if you let it run long enough, you will still get benefits. It's just that they're they're slow in coming, and uh, and that's why having more powerful computing systems are actually important. Why why would it take? I mean, I don't know if you can say this in a non-mathematical way, but why does it take so much data to make these systems work? Is it just because the nature of the the correlations or the equations that describe them are just so complicated that we have to adjust thousands of different factors or why would it take so many examples to make something work? Yeah, so there's there's a there's like several different pieces that actually make it really slow. One is that the networks themselves, because they're deep and complicated and they're handling, you know, full images and and, and re-slicing them in various ways internally, that they can have on the order of millions of internal parameters that all have to be updated each time that it sees a new training example. The other thing is, though, that even even apart from that, the the networks themselves require multiple iterations to converge. So basically, the way that you train these things is you present them with all the examples, you update all the parameters a little bit. You can't update them too much because you want the you want the networks to be able to represent a good mapping across all the input examples. And so, if you're making big changes with every instance that you see. You're going to the network's going to sort of flap around and only remember the most recent thing it, it's it's been shown. So you have to update it really gradually. And so after you've run through all the data, you still haven't really moved all the parameters to where they need to be. And so there's just multiple passes through this data over and over and over again. Each time it's getting a little bit of a better idea where it should go, but um, but it's you know it's, it's an intractable problem to just jump the system to exactly where it needs to end up. Is there any point in mapping the um, the universe of values that all the factors could take? You know, if you take really really small steps, I would guess you create the uh, like a contour map or an error contour map. You know, an X number of dimensions. Is it, again, is there any point in mapping that out and seeing what it quote unquote looks like to look for hidden minimums or hidden maximums or areas that are that behave very differently? Yeah, so it's it's trying to do that. The problem is that it's in, you know, million dimensional space, right? So you know, we're used to thinking about two dimensional space or three dimensional space. But once you get up to like seven or eight dimensional space, our, our intuitions start to break down. And when you're in million dimensional space, it's just crazy town. So it's yeah. it's very difficult to imagine how this might look. The the, the amount of space in, in a, when you have a million dimensions is just mind bogglingly vast. So what these algorithms do is they they do what you suggest. They map things out, but only over a very, very, very narrow piece of that space. And within that narrow piece, they can see what direction they need to go to improve. But, you know, it's like having a tiny little flashlight in a in a you know giant warehouse. You can see just a little piece of where you are, and maybe that gives you a hint of where you should be going, but you're gonna have to take another step and shine the flashlight again and, and redecide. And just like that example, it may take you a month to get out of the warehouse by slowly feeling your way around in the darkness for, for a long time. Exactly right. Huh. Interesting. Okay. 
so, so those uh, are two of the three. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. There's a third factor. Go ahead. So those are the two of the three big shifts that have happened since the last wave of neural networks. We've got more data. and We've got more powerful computers to process that data. And then the other thing, which, of course, is essential, is we've got better algorithms now. We better understand how to configure these networks and how to set up the parameters and how to update them so that it, they don't get stuck as easily. And um, mm. there's, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think I can explain any one particular example of this, but there's just a host of new techniques that that are all related in one way or another to kind of high dimensional optimization. How do you actually search through the space of possible network values uh, to find one that actually is successful on your training data? Okay, in a in a neural network, what's the point of having more than, I mean, having more layers? Why? Uh, why have five layers or six layers or seven layers or 10? I mean, what, how does that help? Why does that work better? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple ways that, that, um, that you can get an intuition about that. Um, let, me, let me try two. One is um, if you look at networks that are actually learning to recognize images and you give them multiple layers to process uh, the data f to go from, you know, here's a set of dots and then the output is it's an ostrich, right? So what you find, and this is actually kind of fascinating, what you find is you look at the different layers and you look at what sort of patterns that that each that that nodes or neurons in each of the layers are excited about. You see that in the in the early layers, it's looking for things like edges, like differences in contrast in a particular part of the image. And then if you go a little deeper, it starts to be able to recognize textures, so sort of combinations of edges over over a narrow field. And if you go out uh, to to the next deeper layer, you see that it's starting to pick up on shapes sort of basic textured shapes, like this This neuron is really excited about, you know, kind of a, a tilted square that has uh, freckles in it. And then if you go even deeper, then it starts to recognize parts of images. So like, okay, it's not just a circle, it's a tire, it's like a car tire, or it's not just a triangle, it's a, it's a cat ear. And then when you go even deeper than that, it starts to recognize entire objects. So this is a neuron that gets excited if there's a cat in the image. This is one that gets excited if there's an airplane in the image. And so these these separate layers are actually giving the network a chance to break down this extremely complicated problem into subproblems that it can attack directly and combine to get more and more sophisticated answers. So each layer is like a series of classifiers, right? Yeah, you can think of it as classifiers or you can think of it as computation, sort of um, you know, like another layer of processing on the image to get uh, higher level concepts to, to, to come about. So that kind of brings me to my second way of, me, of, of describing what, why it is that, it, that it's useful to have lots of layers. If you think about a computer program, it's typical for a computer program to have lots of lines of code, right? And so what those lines of code are doing when it's carrying out some complex operation is each line of code is taking some of the information that was processed in the previous lines of code and computing some new quantity based on that. And so the, the, the lines of code correspond to deeper and deeper computations on the input. And that's essentially what these, these layers in the network are doing as well. So this is, uh, tell me if this example makes sense. Let's say, um, you know, uh, a creature walks into a room and, you know, we would just say we know it's a dog. And someone says, what is that? Well, the first layer may say, okay, well, it looks like, uh, you know, a four-legged thing. And then the second layer may say, okay, based on this and that, it's a dog. And the third layer may say, oh, it's a basset hound mix. And then the fourth layer may say, I don't know, something else. Its tail is docked and it's a basset hound and it's like, you know, older because it has gray hairs or something. Is that what happens in a neural network is you go through selective layers of 
honing in of what something is. You know, you you do like a generic classification, and the next layer does a finer one or a different one or a more specialized one, and on and on. Uh, so that I haven't seen networks do that exactly. It's usually more in terms of sort of synthesizing more and more complex images out of the pieces of the images. So instead of saying that the first layer says, you know, it's a quadruped, but I don't know what it is, it's saying something more like there's a leg, there's an ear, there's a there's an eyelid, right? It's it's recognizing pieces, and then later layers are putting those pieces together to say, oh wait, okay, wait, there's this there's a group of legs, <laughs> you know. Um, and there's a head. And then a, la a later layer might say, okay, it's got the right kind of head and legs to be a dog. So so it will come up with more and more fine-grained uh, classifications of the item, but it's generally doing that by combining pieces from earlier layers. Huh, interesting. And this, uh, so I guess you couldn't do this in parallel with one with one layer that has all the factors in it. It works better to have it in multiple layers, but fewer factors in each layer. Exactly, and that lets all the, the, the computations within each layer be relatively simple, right? It's doing a very mm. simple computation based on the complex data that it's been, um, you know, that's been passed forward in the network. Okay, interesting. I, yeah, I know we could talk about this for a long time. I'm just curious about it, so I asked. Um, yeah, I, no, no, I don't want to get stuck in this. Um, let's move on to the particular type of learning that you're working on. You said it's reinforcement learning. How is that different from what we just talked about? Right, so, so far we've said... Um, a set of terms and how they relate to each other. So deep learning is a particular set of techniques that work with neural networks, which are a particular architecture for instantiating a machine learning system. Now, the way that we've just been talking about it was in the context of supervised learning, where you're trying to label data. Reinforcement learning is a different problem. Reinforcement learning is the problem of trying to improve the, the outputs, but not based on here's what you should do, right? You know, examples. Instead, it's just given scores. So it might be something like, uh, you know, the system looks at an input and it produces an output and we say, meh, <laughs> that wasn't very good. I think you could do better, right? So it doesn't tell it what to be. It just gives it uh, an assessment or an evaluation. So this is obviously a weaker problem. Uh, you can, any, any problem that you can set up as a supervised learning problem, you could set up as a reinforcement learning problem, but it would probably be silly to do so because it's a much harder problem. Right, you're getting a lot less information to to direct how to change the weights to do a better job, but it is more generally applicable as a result. So, uh, you know, a, a way that these kinds of ideas are actually used in practice is in the context of, for example, a, a website deciding which advertisements to show or which news items to show if it's a if it's like a news site. And so right. it's it's doing this by virtue of the fact that when a person clicks on something or indicates interest in something, that we can we can take that to be uh, an evaluation, like oh yeah, that's a good thing, or or no, I didn't click on it, so that's a bad thing, uh, and and that's the feedback that we get. We don't if if the person doesn't like it, when the person doesn't say here's something I would like better, usually the person just says no, that's not that's not right. And so it's it's actually a good match. This this notion of reinforcement learning is a good match for the kind of feedback that people can give online. Okay, so it, it seems more suited to problems where there's no black and white answer, but there's um, a range of, of answers that can hone in close on a desired result, but not exactly. Yeah, it's partly that and partly just that sometimes you just don't know, that we don't have the feedback that says, here's what you should do in this situation. So another example that uh, that's that's made big waves lately is, for example, playing a board game. 
So if you want to make a, a neural network that's going to play a board game in the supervised learning setting, the way you would do that is you'd get a bunch of expert players to say, okay, here's a board, here's the action, here's the move that you should make if the, if the board looks like this. Here's the move you should take when the board looks like this. And you can just have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of examples like that. And it's going to try to learn to mimic the people. Uh, right. In the reinforcement learning setting, you don't do that. What you do instead is you say, let's just let it play the game. And at the end of the game, we know whether it won or lost. And so we can give an evaluation. We can say that was bad play. You lost the game. Or that was really good play. You won the game without ever having to tell it. And here's what you should do instead. If that was bad, here's, here's what would be better. Because that's hard to produce, especially if we would like to produce a um, a game playing system that can play better than people, right? It's, it, mm. you, you can't mimic people and do better than people. The best you can you can do as well as people. But if you can actually use feedback about success or failure as a way of getting better at things, you could potentially surpass the pe the people who actually built the system. So does the reinforcement learning use a neural network, or what kind of structure does it use? Right. So just like in the supervised learning setting, neural networks are one way of, of addressing the problem. Reinforcement learning, there's a bunch of ways of addressing the problem, and some of them use uh, modern deep networks as well. So sometimes the buzzword of deep reinforcement learning is used to describe those kinds of systems. But what they're doing is they're just internally using a deep neural net and the, the standard kind of training procedures that are used for them for representing pieces of what the system is trying to learn. Interesting. And the latest, sexiest type of machine learning is what, deep reinforcement learning, or is it something else? In Within the field of reinforcement learning, people are very excited about deep reinforcement learning. So there was a couple big successes, uh, mostly out of DeepMind in, in London, that really shook up the field and, and, and gave it a lot of new energy. Uh, one was they showed that they could actually use a reinforcement learning system uh, plugged into old 1980s Atari video games to build systems that can play those games at, in some cases, at human uh, levels, right? So as good as a person, in some cases, much better than people for certain kinds of games, and in some cases, much worse than people. But on average, from the games that they actually played, it was kind of comparable to people. And that was really right. remarkable because these, these systems are actually taking as input the, the pixels on the screen, and they're producing as output the joystick commands. So there, there's no, no hand-built system that's extracting the game state and presenting it to the system in a way that it can reason about it. It's just reacting to the pixels that are on the screen. So is that unsupervised learning or is that not the right way? Well, to it's, re it's reinforcement learning in the sense that the systems are given the game score as, as a, as a form of evaluation. So what the yeah. systems are trying to do is figure out how to behave to maximize the score. So it's, it's a kind of supervision. It's not supervised learning because they're not being told do this, but it's not unsupervised learning because it is given a signal. It's given this evaluation signal or reinforcement signal. So how is, how does reinforcement learning work, you know, mechanistically? Um, you know, if you have, I don't know, a hundred factors and the system is running, if it, if a, a certain factor or combination of factors doesn't get it towards its goal, are the weights of those factors reduced or like what, what's happening, I guess, maybe in semi layman's terms? Sure. So there are there's three high level strategies for solving reinforcement learning problems. One is called value function based reinforcement learning. One is called model based reinforcement learning. And one is called policy search. So in the context of policy search, that's in some ways the easiest one to understand, I think. Because what it does is the network represents just a policy, just a mapping from here's pixels, 
produce an output. So it's, it's very similar. The architecture is very similar to here's a picture, output whether or not it's an ostrich. This is saying here's a picture, output whether or not you should go left with the joystick. Now, to train this, what you have to do is take that network and let it play a whole bunch of games and uh, maybe with a little bit of exploration, maybe sometimes choosing an action that isn't what the network would have chosen uh, just to see what would happen if it did something different. And given enough experience of this form, you can actually make an update to the weights to make it so that the, the more successful or the higher scoring actions get more weight or more probability of being chosen. Okay. So that's one approach. Uh, another one that I think is somewhat simple to, to talk about, but actually it has not yet been successful for things like the, the Atari games is model-based reinforcement learning. So in model-based reinforcement learning, the system tries to learn, it basically is partly supervised because what it's trying to learn is if the world looks like this, or if the screen looks like this, and I choose to push left on my joystick, how does the screen change? I wanna learn that mapping from screen looks like this, action was this, now screen looks like this, and here's what points, if any, I got in, the, in that transaction. If the system can, can learn that mapping very efficiently, then it can simulate in its head, as it were, what the effects of different uh, sequences of actions might be. So it sort of can at that point do something like what chess playing programs do. It can do kind of a what if. Like, I don't know what to do now, but if I go left, then this is what will happen next. And if I go right from there, this is what will happen next. And then I'll get some points. And of all the different sequences of things I can think about, that's going to maximize my score. So I should choose left first. Right. So in the model-based setting, it learns that mapping, and then it uses that to do decision-making. Hmm. That, that seems like that way model-based would lead to behaviors. I've heard about you know, machines doing things that people never thought to do, you know, straight yeah, like emergent behaviors. Though, that's right. That's right. Though what's interesting is these, uh, all three of these different methods have produced really surprising results that are different from what people would do. The, um, the other big breakthrough beyond the Atari games is, is these ideas were used in the context of playing the classic board game of Go, um, which is a, a very tough game, sort of strategic like chess, but, um, but simpler in some ways, but, but much richer and more pattern-based. Um, and people have been trying to, to build computer programs that play Go for, for decades without much success. It's, it's definitely been a harder game than chess. But uh, the, the, that same group of people at DeepMind were able to show how they could use deep networks as a way of mapping the Go board to a prediction of how likely the system is to win from a given Go board. And it could then use that information along with other mappings, like um, what's, a, what's a reasonable action to choose in this situation. It was, it was learning all these different kinds of pieces of the mapping which the system then used to project forward in a game and decide what a good move would be. And their current system has beaten the best human beings ever to play the game of Go. So it's, it really is remarkable. It, it makes some very surprising moves that people are like, what? Why would you do that? And then the deeper they analyze it, the more they realize, no, boy, that was, that was the right thing to do. We just never realized it before. Well, that's what I mean. The, the behavior is kind of like the, uh, the, the algorithm is able to map parts of the space that people were never aware of. That's why they can come up with things that people never have. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and it's it's pretty remarkable. So they train this network with the equivalent of like 70 years of playing the game of Go, like just nonstop wow. playing Go for 70 years. And so you're absolutely right. The, the network gets to see weird situations that no person has, has seen enough of or maybe even seen ever to say, oh, wait, that's actually really important. I should pay attention to that. And so they just they get so much more information, so much more experience 
that um, you know, and and these these algorithms find a way to actually use that experience to turn it into really strong play. It's it's kind of remarkable. There's there's the people are still kind of reeling from this realization that uh, that these systems can do so much better than than we thought was possible. Yeah, that's really cool. What's uh, and you mentioned the third way we haven't uh, gone over yet. Yeah, so the value function based algorithms are, are sort of like what I said in the context of Go. That, that what the the network learns to predict is what future reward is going to look like from this situation. So basically, you know, imagine it's playing like a game of Ms. Pac-Man or something like that. That was one of the uh, example games that, that the DeepMind people uh, had in their paper. Uh, what you'd like to be able to predict is, okay, the situation I'm in right now is really problematic because I'm I, I'm going to get low score. Uh, so because maybe I'm about to get pinned by the the, the ghosts, I'm, uh, the enemies are going to come and 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 knock me out, and that's going to lower my score. Sure. So this is a bad situation to be in. It's just it's like I don't I don't like this. I have a bad feeling about this, and that's what it's trying to learn. It's trying to learn a mapping from the current situation of the game to a um, a feeling about how whether things are promising or whether things are dire. And the way that it uses that to then play well is to say, okay, here, I'm in this situation. I could do this action, but that feels bad. I could do this action and that feels better. And I could do this action. Like, actually, that feels really good. I'm going to do that. And over time through playing, it gets to see examples of, okay, I was in this situation and I did this action and it led to badness. And that ultimately is the way that these networks are trained to produce their predictions. So what what are you working on specifically? What are you trying to uh, use this reinforcement learning to solve? In in my group, uh, we're looking at a couple different things. One of the the broad topics that we're most excited about is trying to do reinforcement learning from human feedback. So instead of having something like the score of the game or a win or a loss in Go, we're trying to say a person says, no, I don't really like that. Um, we, what we'd like to be able to produce are robotic systems, for example, that uh, you, know, you can bring it home and then you want it to do something and you can train it the way you might train a pet, like a, you might train a dog to do a certain kind of trick. You could train your robot to, okay, when, when I do this sort of thing, I'd really like you to start vacuuming, right? And so instead of people having to, to be programmers, they just have to be able to learn essentially to be dog trainers, to be able to say, you know, no robot, bad robot. Um, some of the ideas cool. that, that have been studied in reinforcement learning are really directly applicable to this, where you take the human feedback as a form of, of evaluation but it turns out if you if you literally use the standard algorithms, it doesn't work very well. So we've had to run a lot of studies that, uh, in addition to developing new algorithms, that that expose how it is that people tend to give feedback, so that we know how to build the algorithm to interpret that feedback to improve. Well, one question though is, you know, since all these systems need a lot of training data, you know, let's say I don't know, I'm, a, I'm an old lady and I got a personal robot at home <laughs> or something, and I wanted to help me out when things happen. Would it take months for me to be able to correct the robot, just as an example, so it actually acts the way I wanted to? Or, I mean, do you, in the abstract, you need tons and tons of human interactions to train these systems. That's exactly right. Yeah. So our biggest uh, stumbling block at the moment is that we know that we can make these systems work if you were willing to spend, you know, six months giving it feedback. But we, but that's just not practical. We need to find ways to use a much smaller amount of feedback to still do extremely well. And so there's a bunch of different approaches that uh, that my group and other groups have have started to explore as ways of amplifying the small amounts of feedback that you get. Uh, one the one that we've explored most closely is to use some techniques from the deep learning, the supervised deep learning community, where they have determined that there's ways of training networks to take complex inputs and then reduce 
the description length. Make it basically to like extract the really useful and important information in the current situation. If you if you do that, and you can do that without training data, you can have it just kind of ex the robot just explore around on its own, like get to know the house, get to know the different things that happen in the house. Then it can have a much smaller representation, which can be trained much more quickly. And so we've we've had some pre preliminary results where we can do that in the context of. Uh, training an agent to explore around in in the world of Minecraft, another video game, uh, where we can actually use the uh, the simulated camera image that the robot gets and just with a little bit of feedback, just saying like, no, don't, you know, don't do that. Um, it can learn to, to patrol the room or can learn to go to a particular target location, uh, all sorts of different kinds of tasks with, with actually a relatively small amount of feedback. We're, we were, I think, on the order of 15 minutes, like five to 15 minutes of interaction, and the system was able to to master the task. Are you reducing the number of factors by focusing only on the most important factors, or how are you compressing this data? Or are you reducing the possible outputs for each factor, like discretizing the outputs, or you know, how are you doing this conservation? We are using a technique called autoencoding. So this is this is an old idea. Uh, so it's related to what's also known as dimension reduction. So what you can do with these neural networks is you can say, here's here's an input uh, that I don't know what it means, but try to reconstruct it. Try to um, find a smaller representation such that you could then reconstruct the original situation, the original image, say. Um, with enough training data, what it, what it tends to do is it tends to start extracting out commonalities between situations. So if you just gave it random inputs, random noise inputs, there's nothing it could do to reconstruct it. But if you're actually, say, having the robot wander around in the house, it turns out that the house can be described or the different set of views that the robot has can be described in terms of a much smaller set of dimensions. Basically, like, where's the robot in the house and what direction is it looking? And what what these systems do is if you give them enough data and opportunity to use that data, they can actually find the lowest dimensional description of of the situations that it's finding itself in. And that smaller description is what we can end up using for our training. I see what you mean. So you're using, you're training it to a certain point and then you're putting it in a new environment, but it still can rely 80, 90% on the existing training. But because it has that basis, it can it doesn't take that much more to to learn the new stuff, I guess, or the particular situation it's in. Right, right, exactly. So, and, and in particular, in the beginning, we're just training it to to describe the situations that it's in. We don't. It doesn't know yet what it's supposed to do in those situations. It's just trying to identify the the major dimensions of difference between the situations it could be in. So, like maybe if it's a like a home automation, like um, automatic light changer it's learning to recognize light and dark, right? So there's lots of stuff that it could see, but light and dark actually gives you kind of the main dimension of variability between all the different images that it's seeing, you know, like nighttime and daytime. Then later, once once it's it's found that lower dimensional description, then we can start associating its descriptions with what it should do in those situations. So then we can start feeding in the, the human feedback about what the real task is. Well, that's just how people learn. You know, they, they train to do, I don't know, let's say nursing, and then, uh, you know, they're in a new situation, but they rely on their training and they can adapt to the slightly new situation or a different one. Yeah, that's right. And and that's studied in the in under the label in machine learning, under the label of transfer learning. And you've got different tasks, and you'd like to be able to use what you learned on one task to accelerate your learning on some other task. That's a very active area of research right now. Well, very good. So, um, yeah, I don't want to keep questioning you to death here. I mean, we've got a, a lot of great topics uh, 
what's the best way for listeners to get more resources or learn more about what you're doing and you know, to find out more? Sure. So, uh, I mean, at a, at a high level in terms of uh, machine learning, it's a, it's kind of a wonderful time to be interested in these topics because in addition to there being so many people who care about it, there's a kind of a new form of information uh, sharing that's happening. And part of it is podcasts, like your podcast, and part of it is blogs. Um, and, and the blogs are pretty remarkable because unlike, say, the the classic academic scientific papers on these topics, blog writers often will get down to like, okay, well, here's what actually matters. <laughs> like, okay, I don't really know why this works, but here's a thing that works. Try this first. They can give various kinds of uh, hints and tricks and, and uh, kind of anecdotes that are actually really helpful in building up intuition about how to use these techniques. And so it's really neat. I don't know where the world is going as far as this is concerned. I'm, I'm finding more and more of my academic colleagues are finding these, these blogs actually to be really useful. We're not writing them, but we're consuming hmm. them. Um, if you want to learn about a new maybe, area. Maybe they're, all, maybe they're all written by a machine, some kind of hidden intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I mean, I, I give these, these writers a lot of credit because they do a fantastic job of meeting the reader where the reader is, right? So bringing the reader along very gradually. You don't already have to be uh, you know, a PhD in this area to appreciate the the ideas. You can just like, you know, if you're if you're a programmer and you're ready to, to start playing around with it, you're good to go. And there's and there's blogs written from uh with you know different audiences in mind of of you know sort of grad students in the area versus software engineers versus just, you know, people who want to play with this stuff and they're they're say data scientists or something like that or just uh hobbyists of various sorts. So it's re- it's really kind of cool. Um, if you're a more advanced person, if you if you have some background in in the field, uh, I could recommend maybe recommend is too strong a word, but I do have a machine learning course that's available online if uh, people want to try that out. Uh, I did a, a course with a good friend of mine, Charles Isbell at Georgia Tech, where we stepped through all the pieces of machine learning, uh, sort of pre deep learning, but it but it gives a really nice foundation I think in terms of the the fundamental concepts of what machine learning is about. And then we did a second what's, course. What's the name of that? Uh, what's the name of the course, and where do you get it? Get access. It's on the site Udacity, udacity.com, and uh, yeah, it would be good if I knew the actual name of it. I think at one point it was just called machine learning, and the other one was called reinforcement learning, but they might have changed it. I think the reinforcement learning one might be called reinforcement learning and decision making (RLDM), uh, but maybe we could share a link. Would that be a, a helpful way of of getting that information yeah, across. That'd be great. No, that'd be great because it would make uh, a lot of this a lot more accessible to listeners. So that's great. Awesome. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate you coming on the call and, you know, thanks so much for your time. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks for doing what you do. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.